Hello and welcome to this Reorg Special Expert Views on Liability Management Exercises. My name is Sean Kureshi and I'm a Legal Director at Reorg. I'm joined today by three partners from Aiken Gump, Emma Simmons, Sam Brody and Claire Cottle, all of who practice in the Business Reorganisation Department at Aiken. Welcome. Perhaps we can start this Expert Views with you, Claire. So what's the excitement over liability management exercises or LMEs? Why the current focus? Well, I think we find ourselves in rather an unusual economic environment. A number of macroeconomic factors are significantly impacting businesses, for example, inflation, sanctions and all the issues businesses have to deal with post pandemic. But this comes hot on the heels of a decade plus of low interest rates, benign capital markets, and even weaker debt documentation. And critically, this is coupled with really high liquidity in the financing markets. This dry powder is a key distinguishing feature between where sponsors are today and where they were in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis. And it means companies and their sponsors can look to the finance markets for solutions rather than having to face full-blown restructurings or more expansive transactions to deal with these sorts of issues. Unsurprisingly, given the options available, sponsors will prefer to roll the dice to see whether things can improve. And when we say liability management exercise, I think we're talking really about a couple of things. Uh, lots of terminology in the market, but I think what we would say is there are drop-down financing transactions, either at non-guarantors or subsidiaries within the corporate structure that are not bound by the terms of the debt documents or exchange offers where existing indebtedness is um, up-tiered and granted seniority uh, to the prejudice of existing lenders. And I think the, the focus is that these different structures try to solve for different issues. The drop-down financing really deals with liquidity and potentially facilitates the capture of discounts to achieve a deleveraging, whereas typically exchanges would be done to deal with upcoming maturities. These sorts of transactions originated in the US, where the documentation that has allowed for them has been in place for many years more than in Europe. These terms are driven by sponsors seeking to improve their operational rights under the covenants. And often these permissions can be driven by legitimate business need or flexibility to develop the company beyond the profile underwritten at origination. An example of this would be the inclusion of an unrestricted subsidiary construct, i.e. an entity that sits within the corporate group, but is completely outside the purview of the debt documents and does not provide guarantees or security to existing creditors. This was originally included to ensure that an entity in a non-core business or in a startup business, which was not being underwritten by the creditors, would not have its operations unnecessarily curtailed by the covenants. However, this then expanded in com with companies having the right to invest in such entities and expanded again to the use we see today, where unrestricted subsidiary investments are used to incur priming indebtedness and move critical assets outside the reach of existing creditors. We will discuss these transactions in more detail, but the evolution is interesting and the, int and the increasing convergence between the US and European documentary terms means that this technology is now standard in all sponsor-led transactions. This advance in the documentary terms when added to the points we noted around high liquidity levels in the market means these 
transactions are increasingly viable in Europe, and we've begun to see a handful of cases in the last couple of years. If I may, I was going to make kind of one other one other point, which I think is really quite quite interesting when we're thinking about the kind of the recent well, the evolution and the kind of current status of of the kind of of LME LMEs, and I think that that's a dynamic um, in relation to kind of creditors. And I think you know it's been interesting that um, you know uh, over the kind of recent years, there's been a kind of ever increasing participation of kind of private credit and special sits lenders in the in the leverage finance market. And it's kind of in it's within the DNA of those investors to kind of to root out innovative lending structures and, and loose terms in the in the finance documentation. And that's and the finance documents that you know as Claire's mentioned that are that are being produced kind of provide them with ever more fertile fertile ground to find those opportunities. So we're we're in a situation now where for any stressed or distressed debtor, it won't just be the debtor looking to exploit weakness and weaknesses in documentation. There's a kind of active market of investors out there sweating documents on distressed and stress names, working out whether there is an angle they can identify to exploit or risks and weaknesses which they need to be aware of. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Claire. So, Emma, what strategies or objectives are debtors and sponsors trying to achieve by looking to imp implement these types of LME transactions? Yes, yeah, so I suppose at a basic level, um, an LME transaction is likely to be an alternative to either obtaining broader sets of consents necessary to facilitate raising additional priority debt or an alternative to a comprehensive restructuring um, so, you know, it may be that the company is just going to go and use um, existing basket capacity to raise additional priority debt. And in those cases, they wouldn't need any consents. Or it may be that they are going to um, go through a consent process to be able to raise new money because there aren't there isn't sufficient basket availability. Um, but they would be looking to get those consents from a very confined group of creditors who are participating in the new money and therefore are incentivized to give the consent. So in those circumstances, the company would be avoiding going through a sort of broader level of negotiation with its creditors. Um, they're really focusing on a small group of um, creditors who have ready new money available and incentivized to provide um, the consent and the new money because they're getting better terms. Um, and, and also, as I said, it may just be an alternative to a full-blown restructuring process, and the debtors and sponsors may see that as being attractive because of the reduced cost burn on the business of doing a more confined contractual process, um, and because the restructuring process is likely to just take a lot longer and could be seen as having some impact on the business. Um, I, I guess I'd say, though, that obviously by not embarking on a financial restructuring, they won't be addressing the balance sheet issues um, and they will likely just be increasing leverage on the on the business. Um, so, you know, it, it, it may be there that they're not pursuing the type of holistic solution that they need and just in effect adding to the problem by adding on debt um, and potentially creating a much more complex capital structure, which could be more difficult to, to restructure in the future. Another, I think another point is that, um, you know, looking at LME transactions and, and perhaps engaging on them with creditors 
um, even if they're susceptible to challenge, and we'll come on to talk about that in a bit more detail, but even if they could be seen as being susceptible to challenge, they may just be a leverage play in anticipation of a wider restructuring. And that's something that we saw in the Olympic entertainment case. Um, so just raising the spectre of being able to do an LME deal without getting consents from all of the creditors may be enough to sort of facilitate constructive engagement about, around a restructuring process. Um, and, you know, it's it's also worth saying that um, it's, debtors may feel that they need to consider LME transactions, but in fact, they may end up being superseded in the future by, um, you know, a statutory process such as an RP or a scheme. We've seen that in a, in a few situations because the challenges presented by the LME just become too significant. Thanks, Emma. OK, Claire, there's been quite a bit of what's called lender-on-lender lender violence in the US, such as you mentioned, up-tiering and drop-down financing transactions. Have those types of deals migrated to Europe in the same degree? I think that at this point in time, the real tension in the European market is more around companies and sponsors against creditors rather than one group of creditors seeking to benefit at the cost of another. The deals that we have seen in Europe, like Olympic Entertainment that Emma mentioned, have really been sponsor-driven deals to deal with equity level issues, e.g. a sort of refinancing risk, rather than opportunistic investing in capital structures by third-party lenders. However, there are some aspects of these transactions in the market that have echoes of the lender on lender violence we've seen in the US, where creditors have taken bold active steps to drive through deals. Uh, in the US, there's a much more developed market and angle to these transactions. Originally, deals of this nature were sponsor-driven, with the sponsors being the financiers of the new money. This evolved to sponsors working with selective groups of creditors to drive through the transaction and fragmenting the existing cre creditor group to minimize opposition. But the latest iteration is sponsors working with third-party creditors to structure transactions at the expense of their existing creditors but while seeking to actively fragment the existing creditor group. This approach has resulted in some creditor groups seeking to proactively align amongst themselves and enter into cooperation agreements, which seek to unite lenders and avoid the risk of sponsors picking creditors off on, a, on an isolated basis. Whilst these arrangements are fairly novel in the European market, as the LME transactions materialize, so will these lender driven pro protective steps. Thanks, Claire. Sam, why do you think we have seen a smaller volume of the lender on lender type enemy deals in Europe? Is that because documents are perhaps more tightly drafted? I think that's one element of it, um, certainly. I mean, generally speaking, um, creditors are more restricted bind creditor agreements and credit agreements in the UK and Europe. Um, for example, um, those types of documents make an up-tiering transaction potentially more difficult because of the sacred rights that are embedded in those types of documents, which will typically, typically prevent the subordination, for example, of existing creditors' liens or priority positions without unanimous consent. And in fact, um, it's the strength of those types of documents that's been one of the reasons, I think, why some of the upturing deals, certainly that we've been involved in, in Europe, have been have, have tended to be implemented either through schemes or RPs or, or, or indeed even just fully consensual 
arrangements between creditors rather than through the kind of more creative or potentially contentious manipulation of the provisions of, of the loose debt documents. I think the, the other point to note in, in response to your question is that in addition to the kind of contractual limitations that we might see, there are often kind of more legal principles in the UK and Europe, uh, which have a role to play in limiting uh, certainly the appetite of debtors to pursue those types of more opportunistic or innovative, you might call them kind of LME transactions that have been seen in the US. A um, couple of examples of that, you know, directors in Europe will often have personal liability and they may feel that you know they have less freedom to sanction the more aggressive transactions, um, even even if the documents allow them to do so. Especially when the there's a prospect that the relevant debtor is or was potentially close to being in the zone of insolvency, such that the risk of those transactions being potentially reviewable um, is greater. I mean that said, I mean although there are the direct duties that I've just mentioned, it doesn't mean that they won't. And look at these types of deals. And in fact, it's very often the case that um, the, the less flexible regime which directors perhaps are subject to in, in Europe may encourage them to look at different types of LME transactions. So, for example, it may be easier for them to approve a, a designating transaction than, for example, the, the arguably more artificial structure, which Claire mentioned, where an unrestricted subsidiary is created into which are, are dropped, you know, or, or transferred, you know, tra uh, assets. Um, the, the other kind of point to note, because we, we've touched on um, exchange offers, often those come with exit consents. And, and they're another good example of where um, a specific legal principle might discourage certainly UK debtor from pursuing what might be considered a more common type of transaction in the US. As I'm sure you know, exit consents are used to encourage bondholders to participate in exchange offers with those bondholders exchanging old bonds for new bonds having to consent as a condition to that exchange to certain amendments which weaken the terms of the old bonds um, this obviously incentivizes participation in the exchange offer uh, however in the uk these kind of exit consents are i suppose more rare because certainly than they are in the US, because ever since the Senegal decision of the English court, there has been doubt over the extent of coercion that can be included in these exit consents. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Emma, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the restructuring regimes within the UK and Europe, as Sam touched on. Do you think the nature of these regimes has had an impact on the number of smaller relative to the US, more aggressive or contested LME transactions in Europe? I certainly think that's um, that's potentially true, but I also think it will have that impact going forward. So when we look at the restructuring court processes that we use within the UK and Europe, they are just much more light touch really than a full-blown chapter 11 process. So, you know, commonly we are using schemes and more lately restructuring plans, um, and they provide debtors with the flexibility to target a process on a specific group of financial creditors 
And in doing that, they can leave the other creditors in the company untouched. So, for instance, you know, trade creditors would just be left outside the scheme and the restructuring plan. Whereas Chapter 11 is a really a holistic bankruptcy process, um, which touches on all of the creditors. It tends to be much more long term, you know, more expensive. And um, I do think that means that in the US, where there is a choice between doing Chapter 11 or perhaps a more aggressive LME transaction, often debtors have tended towards the latter and seen that as being a more viable route. And I think in Europe, where there is that option of doing a scheme or an RP on a light touch basis, it not being an insolvency process, um, I do think that that from a director's perspective may well be more attractive than going down an LME process. You know, if you if you think about the scheme that's providing a court sanctioned route to doing a transaction, as Sam mentioned, there are schemes and RPs which have provided for up tiering. But the benefit from the debtor is that they emerge from the court process with that transaction being sanctioned and they know that it's not going to be litigated mm. going forwards. Um, and I think from a director's duty perspective, that is just going to be quite attractive when coupled as well with the fact the scheme and the RP, you know, it may be it may be a bit more expensive than doing an LME transaction. Um, but when you layer in the cost of potential litigation, that that may well in the end not be the case. Just then touching on the litigation risk, when you look at some of the very aggressive LME deals that have been done in the US, a lot of them are still subject to to litigation. Um, and I think when people look at that from Europe and thinking about, you know, having potentially a very extended litigation process, together with the risk of personal liability that Sam mentioned or mentioned, um, that, again, may just make it much less attractive than going down a court process where you're really getting all of the, you know, in a scheme and RP, the directors will generally emerge with a full set of releases from the financial creditors. Um, and then I think just, you know, one other thing worth mentioning is I do think the culture probably within the European restructuring market is just um, perhaps a bit more collaborative, a bit less litigious. That's how we've all been brought up through the the you know deals that we've worked on. If you look back to the London approach, I suppose that's where it all started. And I do think that culture still persists here. Um, so maybe that's a factor that will reduce the likelihood of companies pursuing very aggressive transactions. I completely agree, Emma. Although I think maybe just to add to that is that I think it's now becoming more and more incumbent on directors to at least turn their minds to these types of transactions, whether that's simply to use the, the phantom of them uh, in negotiations with their lenders or whether they you know, do the work on them and work out whether that is actually a better outcome for their creditors than something more, uh, you know, broader in its scope, like a scheme or, or a restructuring plan. And I think it's a sort of ever evolving question. Every time you think you have got to the bottom of all the things that the sponsors can do, they come up with something new. You know, a good example of that is the sort of Revlon um, idea where parry debt is incurred to improve voting chances so that you can deliver what seemed to be an impossible decision mm -hmm. Through, the, through using your existing parry debt baskets. There was a time where the parry debt baskets were sort of anathema in the LME world, but now they're front and center again as they're being used to 
you know, I won't say gerrymander, but being used to create a different voting profile and deliver a, consent, a seemingly consensual transaction. And I think that sort of ever-evolving landscape means that directors, unfortunately, have to consider all options uh, before them when they face these sorts of issues. Sam, what are the perspectives of the creditors in these situations? Well, I think that often depends on where the creditors are. You know, are they are they existing? Are they are they in the existing capital stack, or are they kind of prospective? creditors looking to you know buy into the structure um i'd say that lenders who are already in the capital structure will obviously want to know um if they don't already uh what can happen to them under the documents or indeed what they might be able to do you know in terms of furthering their own position whether or not that's the detriment of other creditors um and they'll also, you know, that so they want to know, you know, what options does a sponsor or debtor have? What options do other creditors groups have, um, which they might pursue to that particular creditor's disadvantage? Um, as an in kind of existing creditor or an incumbent creditor, I don't think it's necessarily a completely defensive perspective, um, because often, you know, if they if they're within the creditor group, they may have um i suppose better access to information or management and they may well be thinking about you know potentially being part of whatever solution needs to be provided they may be thinking about being in a prime position to offer additional liquidity to the company um you know uh, possibly in exchange for a kind of preferential position in the capital structure and i think that's an that that's always an important piece right I think for any creditor looking to um, preserve or improve its position within the capital structure, then the requirement to be, or the ability to provide new money is always critical for any existing creditor, because often that's, you know, such a key feature of any kind of new deal. Um, in terms of lenders kind of outside the tent looking in, you know, obviously they're always going to be looking to see you know, ways in which possibly they can put new money to work if it's a liquidity issue, either really as a means of um, uh, putting them in a prime position to influence any kind of forthcoming restructuring, or simply just putting in money on a priority basis so that you know, they can get you know, good economic terms with um, the comfort of knowing that they're kind of secured over a, a good pool of collateral. Um, and certainly we you know we've looked at a lot of situations for clients where they are looking at either option i think um there's always a preference right and it's not always a not always an easy solution to find but there's always a preference for people to 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 put new money on in on a on a secured and senior basis with with the option to be very much front of center if a restructuring you know does need to take place down the line Thanks, Sam. So as a final question, Emma, how can creditors prepare for or anticipate potential LME transactions that are prejudicial to their interests? Is there anything that minority creditors can do in particular? Yeah, so I think there are a few things that they can do. So firstly is being organised. Um, so, you know, trying to get involved in any sort of ad hoc committee 
that is formed and probably trying to ensure that is formed early on rather than just in response to action that's taken by the sponsor or the debtor. I think what's key here is really trying to anticipate proactively what might come down the line. Um, and part of that, I think, is you know, getting advice on what the company's potential options are. So trying to look at it through the lens of the sponsor, what baskets are available, what consents might be needed for up-tiering and just really trying to, you know, model out how the sponsor might be looking at it so you can be as on the front foot as possible. Um, that, that's one end of the spectrum. And then we've also touched on the fact that we have seen the emergence of cooperation agreements. They're clearly used a lot in the in the US. And I think that is something that we are starting to see to come into Europe, where creditors will, you know, contractually say we are going to move as a group, and we're not going to consent to this transaction, or, you know, something that the company might, might propose unless we all are happy with that. And I think that that can be extremely effective, where there is a good group of creditors who are signing up to that. And I think for a minority creditor, becoming part of that arrangement can be extremely helpful it does though clearly come at the loss of some level of optionality because you're contracting with other creditors to say we'll move together so there's always that sort of tension um i think another point is just trying to keep close to the management and the sponsor uh so you know often creditors will have existing relationships with the company or the sponsor and i think trying to maintain that dialogue so that you know, as, as far as possible, you know, you know what is coming down the line and you would be considered as a provider of new money, I think is incredibly helpful. Um, and then beyond that, I think it's really just trying to leverage some of the points that we've talked about, like director's duties, you know, really reminding the company of the fact that they need to have an eye out for all of their creditors that they may be breaching their duties if they pursue very aggressive transactions and that you're ready to litigate I suppose in those circumstances and then I think also you know where there's a trustee or an agent involved they tend to be quite conservative around their involvement in these types of transactions um, so I think that can be an area where creditors can you know try and um, I suppose, leverage that relationship with the trustee and the agent and say, you know, if you proceed with this, we're going to look to you um, if there's any sort of damages resulting. So I think there are a few angles there for minority creditors. Well, thanks, Emma, Claire and Sam. Some real great insights there. I look forward to seeing more LMEs and perhaps some creditor on creditor violence this year in Europe. To all of our listeners, thank you. As a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data and analytics for law firms, investors and advisors. If you are already a Reorg subscriber, please send any further questions you have on this or other topics to customer success at reorg.com.